Well, I must admit, every week I'm tempted to do one of two things in my sermon beginning or my sermon opening or even in my sermon illustrations. Um, I'm only interested in a few things in the world and the two things that kind of push me forward every day. Uh, one is obvious, it's sports. The other one is a little strange. It's, it's Lord of the Rings. I, I, I just, for some reason, I connect with every second of those movies. And so I'm tempted every week to insert those uh, illustrations from those movies or from sports into my sermons. And so I have to pull myself back a little bit, but this week is not that week. And you'll see why in a second. It'll make sense, I promise. Now, if you haven't seen Lord of the Rings, the, the three movies, or you haven't read the books, uh, I'm going to spoil it for you here. There's a, a, a brave little hobbit. Hobbit are people. They're... Uh, People mixed with rabbits, I don't know, but they're, they're little hobbit people. They're short, tiny people with giant feet. A brave little hobbit named Frodo Baggins is given a ring. And it's not just any ring. This ring is a ring of power. It's the ring that rules all of the rings. And his job throughout the movie, as we see, is to destroy this ring. And you say, well, why do you want to destroy a ring? Because if the evil Lord Sauron gets a hold of this ring that he had forged and put all of his power into, if he gets it back, he will take over the world and evil will reign forever and ever. So the future of every living being is in the hands of this little person. To destroy the ring... Frodo must travel nearly 2,000 miles to a mountain, go inside the mountain, throw the ring in a, uh, a pit of fiery lava, a river that runs with, with fiery lava. And here's the spoiler that comes. After almost a year of traveling and almost 2,000 miles and getting out of many, many bad situations, the ring is destroyed, evil is vanquished, order is restored, and life goes on. But the ring that Frodo carried, he, he wore it on a, on a chain around his neck, and the ring that he carried, because of the power that it, it contained, it was too much for him to bear. It made many good people go crazy. And for Frodo, it was too much. He, he can no longer stay in Middle-earth. This is where the whole story occurs, is in Middle-earth. He, he was invited again, and I know if you've never seen this, sounds weird. Why is he talking about elves? But he was invited by elves to go to the undying lands across the sea. A place where only immortal beings, elves, and those who carried the ring can go. The author, J.R.R. Tolkien, a Christian and a friend of C.S. Lewis, re read that story. It's encouraging and exciting to see. He said that his work is not an allegory, but I don't believe him at all. He, he adamantly says that it's not, but it, how can you believe him? Listen to the scene that describes uh, when Frodo boards the ship to go across the sea to the undying lands, leaving his three best friends behind him. And this is from the book. Then Frodo kissed Mary and Pippin, and last of all Sam, and went abroad. And the sails were drawn up, and the wind blew, and slowly the ship slipped away down the long gray firth, and the light of the glass of Galadriel that Frodo bore glimmered and was lost. And the ship went out into the high sea, on into the west, until at last a night of rain, Frodo smelled a sweet fragrance on the air and heard the, sight of singing, heard the sound of singing that came over the water. And then it seemed to him as in a dream in the house of Bombadil, the gray rain curtain turned all to silver glass and was rolled back. And he beheld white shores and beyond them 
a far green country under a swift sunrise. But to Sam, the evening deepened to darkness as he stood at the haven. And as he looked at the gray sea, he saw only a shadow on the waters that was soon lost in the west. There still he stood far into the night, hearing only the sigh and murmur of the waves on the shores of Middle Earth. And the sound of them sank deep into his heart. Beside him stood Mary and Pippin, and they were silent. I know some of those references will be lost in you, but those don't matter in this. This scene is absolutely, without question, in my mind, a metaphor for death. He goes, he has peace, he's gone, his life is over, and the three stand there silently mourning the loss of their friend. But if you've seen The Return of the King, the third movie in this trilogy, if you've seen this, you'll remember this scene, and it's the one thing that I look forward to every time. Frodo boards the ship, and as he turns back to look at his friends, what does he do? He doesn't shed a tear, he turns and smiles as if the weight of the world has been taken off his shoulders. He, he knows that his, his time is over. He knows that he has this freedom that he didn't have before. It's time for him to move on. I believe this scene, taken with a few other nods in this story, is a form of death. Frodo is going to the undying lands to become something new. It's not reincarnation. He's not turning into something different. It's a picture of heaven. Tolkien is a Christian. He's, he was a believer. He, he knew what he was doing, whether he admitted it or not. And the reality is, though, that death is too grim for many of us to talk about. Most of us will get sad when we talked about the fact that one day we will breathe our last breath. One day our eyes will close for the last time. On the other hand, others will make a joke of it and say, well, when I die, I want to go out like my grandfather in his sleep, not like those people in the back seat of his car. It's, you'll get that at lunch. You'll get that. Some of you will get it in a couple minutes. You start laughing. You have my permission. But the truth is that death is guaranteed to all of us. Every single one of us will one day die. And this is a result of the sin of Adam in the garden. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, the, death, the, the sin that they had, it funneled down to us so that everything after them would die. Our passage this morning is a description of this similar thing. It's Abraham's last moments. Even a man chosen by God for this important task that Abraham had, and, and very few people in the history of humanity are more important than Abraham. Even a man like Abraham cannot escape the guarantee that he would die. Well, in verses 1 through 6, we see Abraham's legacy. After Sarah died, we saw in Genesis 23 that Abraham secured a cave to bury his wife. Now, he, all he wanted was a cave. He just wanted a place to put his wife. And, and when he, he, he goes to uh, Ephron, and Ephron said, well, you know what, we'll give you the cave, but you've got to buy the field around it. So he purchased the field. No one knew at the time, so Abraham didn't, but God was working his plan out perfectly. Abraham owned none of the land uh, controlled by the Hittites and just needed a burial site. He just needed a small place. But God promised that his ancestors would inherit that land. God was at work. And then in chapter 24, we see God's providence on full display as he orchestrates the marriage and the meeting and the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah. 
And if you remember that, there's so much that had to happen perfectly or that wouldn't have worked out. But God orchestrated that so that people met at the right time. People interacted at the right time. People said the right words at the right time. It was all part of his plan. And the most important part of the plan that God did was how he prepared the way for the Messiah to come. See, the truth is all of these people that we're reading about, Abraham, Isaac, Rebecca, Rachel, all of these people are in the same position that we are. Guilty before a perfect God. None of them could save themselves. None of them were good enough. They're not any better than you or me. We're all, we're all guilty. We're all standing before the holy and righteous creator of the universe, standing guilty before him in our own works. Abraham experienced a lot more than any of us will, but he was still a hopeless wretch, just like I am. But God used Abraham to move forward the promises that he made. And and we've seen that God always keeps his promises and that he takes mistakes all the time and turns them into something for his glory and for our good. And we saw that with the death of his wife. So Sarah is buried. Abraham owns a large piece of property. And Isaac and Rebekah are married. And this is found in verses 1 through 6. It says that, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah, and then she bore six sons to Abraham. So he gets married again. We don't know when this happened. Genesis has a way of of telling stories that may have happened before or after. It doesn't really matter. What we know is that uh, Abraham is now married and his son Isaac is now married. And then in chapter 25, we see that Abraham and Keturah were married for 35 years. Now notice the names of the sons in verse Two. Every single one of these names is connected somehow to the Arabian Peninsula. Now, Keturah, the, the, the name Keturah means spice or, or, or smoke incense. So scholars think that there's some connection there. So the mom is, is named after spices and smoked incense. And so the kids are all affiliated somehow with that as well. They believe that they in, became involved heavily in the spice trade. So it says here that the six sons plus the 12 sons of Ishmael, verses 13 and 15 say this, would occupy the region near Egypt. So through these sons, through these descendants of Abraham, we see God's promise come true that Abraham would father many nations. It didn't even take that long. And the promise of God is is unfolding and coming true. Now you may wonder, where's Isaac in this? Well, there's really no record of how he and his six half-brothers got along. We know that Isaac and Ishmael uh, didn't really get along well, and mostly that was from Ishmael's side, which we understand. It's the, the, the perfect younger baby, and here I am as a teenager, and I'm being ignored. Of course you're not going to like that little baby. So Isaac and Ishmael are, 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 are obviously have issues, but it doesn't say anything about the six half-brothers. But it does say that Abraham is at the end of his life. He knows his time is coming to an end. He, he lived for many, many years with his first wife, Sarah, and then Sarah dies. He gets remarried, and then he lives 35 more years with his second wife. An extremely long life, and it's peaceful at the end. You notice in these pages that there are no records of battles at the end of his life. There's no miraculous things happening. 
I, w- I was telling my wife last night, I said, you know, um, traveling is, is, it sounds really fun and, and going to places sounds really fun, but I kind of just like my boring life. I like my bed. I like my shower. I like knowing what channels I need to watch. I, I like knowing where things are at. I like boring, and at the end of his life, it was boring, and it was perfect. It's just a normal way to end one's life. But before he dies, he's thinking through all of these things that, that all of us need to think about when, uh, when we're coming to the end of our, our lives. And he gives all of what he owned, he gives all of it to Isaac. And in hindsight, we understand this, but would his other sons, who were equally his sons, would they have understood Now, he didn't give all of what he had to Isaac. He gave gifts still to those sons, and then he sent them away to the east. Now, notice this in verse 6. Abraham sent them away. The same word for sent away or sent in Hebrew is the same word that's used in Genesis 21 when Abraham sends away Hagar. There's a feeling of care in that that Abraham gave them things. We, We imagine that they were provisions and some valuable possessions that they could use to survive. But he sends them away. I'm always curious, and I don't know if you are too. I'm always curious what's happening between the lines in Scripture. We've seen many, many years from Genesis 1 all the way to Genesis 25, and there's a whole lot that's not discussed, and in God's providence that's not in here because that's what God decided. But kind of want to know a little more about these people, don't we? I want to know the personal reactions. I want to see that these people have the same fighting in their families as I do, right? I want to see this. And I'm always curious what's happening. God decided not to have their feelings and thought included in this account, but I still wonder, how are they feeling? How are these six sons of Abraham feeling at this moment? Do they have hope? Isaac, he's, he's the one. He, he's the favorite child. What about us? They had been banished by their father in effect. But look at Isaiah 60, verses 6 and 7. It gives a prophecy about their descendants. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. And those, uh, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my beautiful house. Now, even with this prophetic word in Isaiah, you may still think that what happened to these six brothers wasn't fair. By our standards, probably not. We have a, a tendency that when, if we have three kids, we divide our estate equally into thirds. We're not familiar, though, with the cultural norms uh, of the world of Abraham, so we're not entirely certain of how Abraham would have dealt with the other sons. But, spiritually speaking, set aside those, those gifts and the, the land and the possessions and the cattle and all of the people that, that they would have working for them. Forget that for a second. The reality is that we can be certain that those six brothers, all of their offspring too, could have received the promise that was given to Abraham. All of them could have. If they would have just had faith. 
Galatians 3.29 says this, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The guarantee of a future, the guarantee of having a right relationship, being reconciled to God, could have been given to them if they would have had faith that God keeps his promises and that God would one day send the Messiah to save their sins. It's the same promise that we have. When we proclaim the gospel to people, when we share the gospel with people who don't know Christ, we're saying you can be part of this promise too. Put your faith in Christ, trust in him for your salvation, live for him, serve him, give him all that you are, die to yourself so that you can be made new by the power of the Holy Spirit, and you are now heirs of the same promise that Abraham was promised. It could be yours. So could it be given to these six sons? They could have been given the promise of eternal life in the presence of God if they trusted the promises of God. That's what Hebrews 11 says. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen, uh, so what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. By faith, by faith, Abraham was saved from the fate that is guaranteed to all of us if we die in our sins. Each and every one of us stands guilty before God unless Christ has covered up our offenses. This is what the Bible says. We don't know the entire story of his sons with Keturah, but I'm certain that they could enjoy the promise the same way that Abraham did. Well, then the text moves on to Abraham's death in verses 7 through 11. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave at Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, at east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahiroi. Verse 7 says that Abraham lived for 175 years. Now, we've encountered this before a few times in Genesis. Um, We can't get too hung up on the ages, though. Don't, Don't miss what's happening. Don't miss the purpose of why it's written to dissect numbers in the Bible. I'm I'm not saying that these aren't important, but what I'm saying is don't miss the purpose trying to find details. Because the original readers of Genesis 
The original readers of of Moses' letter that came hundreds and hundreds of years after uh, the events that happened to Abraham, uh, they would have read the book of Genesis and they would have never questioned the science. That, That didn't matter to them. How can someone live to be 175 years old? That didn't really matter to these people. They wouldn't have cared how old someone was or whether a day in creation was literally a 24-hour day. They weren't at that stage yet scientifically, and they weren't arguing, as we often hear today, about those things that have been completely foreign to them. Here's what they would have wanted to know. That Abraham lived a long life and that God is the creator of all things, not the other gods that they had been exposed to while living in foreign occupation. The events of this passage happened hundreds of years before Moses put ink on papyrus. So the point of all this is to say this. Abraham was chosen by God for a special task. That's what the readers would have wanted to know. That God chose Abraham to accomplish his purposes. And to lay the foundation for the coming Messiah that would save us all from our sin. The point of all this is that the gospel was laid way back in Genesis. And Abraham made many mistakes and hurt many people along the way, but God was always faithful. Even in Abraham's dying days. Verses 7 and 8 say that, uh, detail his age at death. Verses 9 and 10 tell of his burial in the cave that was purchased years prior. And that his body was placed next to his first wife, Sarah. Verse 8 is something that we want to be said about us, isn't it? He breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. That's something I'd like to have written about me. I'm sure you too. In verse 11, there's confirmation of Isaac as the heir. Isaac, not Ishmael, or one of the six sons would inherit the blessing. What does this all mean? We've seen this a few times in Genesis that it's, it's, man, this is just another narrative. This is just another story that we're reading. What does this have to do? How how do you preach this? Well, if you're not convicted as I am, um, reread this passage because I think it will bring you to a point of thinking of your own death. Thinking of your own mortality. Now, I'm not talking about uh, the fact that that we all know for a fact that one day we will all die. That's not what I'm, I'm talking about. Every time I wait for tests to come back or every time I feel this pain and I can be a little bit of a hypochondriac, every time I, something just doesn't feel right, uh, I'm starting to think about, okay, what am I going to do now? You know, those kind of things, and I start to panic. That's not what I'm talking about. We all suffer through that. We all deal with those things. And we, f- we all know this to be true. But I'm talking about the here and now. I'm not talking about something that may happen decades from now. I'm talking about right Now, are you ready for your own death? And I'm not saying this to be morbid, but I'm saying this as our pastoral prayer said today and as as we prayed for our brother Josh, who we love, we are faced with this question. And I can tell you this, knowing Josh, and you all know this, that he, he knows where his soul belongs to. He knows that if he were to literally breathe his last breath today, that he would be in the presence of Jesus celebrating question is for you though what is your answer to that if you were to die right this moment are you ready are you ready for your own death 
I, I enjoy watching old black and white TV shows mostly because I don't have to edit them around my children or myself. And so some of the shows that I watch are, are Andy Griffith and Dick Van Dyke and Leave it to Beaver. Those are three at the top of my list. But one thing that you'll see that's not in those shows is during the commercials of those shows, what are those commercials, especially during the day? What, what commercials are they showing? Cheap phone service for seniors, right? How to get more money for your Social Security check. You got Jimmy J.J. Walker telling you to, to uh, Joe Namath telling you to call this number to make sure you get more money in your Social Security check, right? And a whole lot of commercials about life insurance. Alex Trebek used to be on those. Now, I have insurance, but my life insurance stops well before the time that I, I would be expected to die. And at 40 years old, I'm really not that concerned about burial costs. But see, this is what most people think of when they talk about their own mortality. These are important things. I'm not denying that. It's good to have an insurance policy that covers your burial or cremation. It's good to have a will so that what you own can be distributed to those you love. It's good to have a plan for how you'll come up with medical coverage when you get older. But when I say, are you ready for your own death, I'm not speaking as an insurance salesman or a funeral director. I'm asking this question first as a Christian and second as a pastor. Are you ready for your own death? Meaning, are you spiritually ready to die? God promise, God's promises to Abraham were never meant to get him to behave in a certain way. Though it should have caused that. Abraham received the promise of God because God planned it that way. Abraham could never keep up his end of the deal, so God held him up the only way, and that's the only way that could have happened. And God knew that. And so I want to read a few passages from the New Testament, uh, very helpful, um, given in a series of sermons I've mentioned in before by Kent Hughes, a retired pastor. But I want to give you these instances of, of, of speaking of Abraham in the New Testament. And all the while, I want you to examine your own heart to see if I were to die today, am I ready? Because I think that's a question that we don't ask. We don't talk about that enough. That if we were in the moments leaving after this church, if we were to go and get hit by a car or we were to have a fatal heart attack, are we ready for that? Financially, you may be fine. But when you're gone, what does finances matter? Is your heart prepared? In Romans 4, Paul shows that Abraham was saved by faith. Paul writes this, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Faith. Verses 6 through 8 say that David was saved by faith. Verses 9 through 12 say the Gentiles were saved by faith. And in Romans 4, verses 13 through 17, Paul says this, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if, it's, if the inherent adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void, for the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only the adherent of the law, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. 
in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things do not exist. By faith, righteousness came under the law. In James 2, we see this kind of that, we see Romans and James as kind of polar opposites at times, but they work together because Romans shows us how to become believers, how to follow after Christ in faith, and James shows us what that looks like afterwards. James says this, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son on Isaac, or his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son wasn't what made him good with God. I hope you understand that. Abraham's faith brought him to a point that obedience was a result of that faith. Abraham would have never taken his son up the mountain had he not had faith that God would do what was right every single time. He had faith. In Galatians 3, we see that the ultimate offspring of Abraham is Jesus. And if we're saved by faith in Christ, then we are Abraham's true offspring. Verses 7 through 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And then in verse 26 through 29, In Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. This is the hope that Abraham had. And it's the same hope that every single person who puts their faith in Christ has too. Finally, in Hebrews 11, the author uses Abraham's life to show how a person of faith lives. We've already read this. There's obedience, hope, confidence, sacrifice, reasoning. Each of these passages will hopefully get you thinking about Abraham, but not just to learn about Abraham. Anybody can do that. I hope that you consider your own heart and mind to see if the same hope that Abraham had is in you as well. And so this is the question that I posed earlier, and I'll close with this. Are you ready for your own death? None of us want to die. None of us are looking forward to that day, although what's after that for believers is what we've been waiting for. But none of us want to die. We, we don't like talking about this. We don't want to anticipate this happening. Living or dying like Abraham, though, will accomplish nothing for you. If you say, and you may hear this from people, that you need to be, you need to be tough like Daniel or tough like, brave like Daniel. You need to be tough like David. You need to be obedient like Abraham. Man, they failed. They didn't do it well, at least not all the time. Living like these characters in the Old Testament or anybody else, you will fail. 
You must be born again. You must have faith that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and that God always keeps his word. If you can't say that for certain, if you can't say that's me, I know for certain that if I were to breathe my last breath right now that I would stand in the presence of God. If you can't say that for certain, let this be a moment where you examine your own heart. To see, to see if what you believe and what you have faith in and what you value most is what God says you must value most and what you must believe in. Psalm 145 says, The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Hebrews 4, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And what does this mean for you? It means that the gospel has been preached. You've heard it. You've heard me proclaim the gospel, hopefully every time I stand back here, but you've heard the gospel proclaimed. You've heard the fact that you are not good enough, but Jesus is. And that put your faith in Jesus, not yourself. Trust in the one who can be perfect for you, who can give you eternal life, who can give you the promise that was given to Abraham, who can give you everything that you need to be right and to be reconciled with God. This is the gospel. You've been shown how sinful we are. You've been shown how Jesus was perfect and he lived a a perfect life and died so that you could be reconciled with the Father. So again, I pose this question, what happens if on the way home today, you die? Are you ready for that? Are you ready to to spiritually stand before the Father to say, yes, I'm not good enough, but I've trusted in your Son, and that's good enough for you? If you're not, then today is that day for you, I hope, I pray. There's a song that we sing, and we've sung a few times here, um, that, that I think we all need to hear, and we all need to be reminded of this. Uh, um, and so the question is, can you speak these words? Can you, can you speak these words that define, uh, to, to make them define who you are? Listen, come and stand before your maker, full of wonder, full of fear. Come behold his power and glory, yet with confidence draw near. For the one who holds the heavens and commands the stars above is the God who bends to bless us with an unrelenting love. So why we sing that song? Author continues. All our sickness, all our sorrows, Jesus carried up the hill. He has walked this path before us. He is walking with us still. Turning tragedy to triumph, turning agony to praise. There is blessing in the battle, so take heart and stand amazed. Can you say that? Can you, I mean, we can all repeat it, but can you say that? Can you mean that? Do you understand that? Have you been changed so that you see those words and the words found in Scripture with new eyes? If not, I urge you to consider what needs to be done for you to be reconciled with the Father who promises you, just like every good father does, that he will answer your prayers and he will answer your requests. That if you come to God today and say, Father, I am broken over my sin, I trust in you. His promise is that he will give you all of those promises that he gave to Abraham. I'm not talking about land. Who cares about land? Who cares about money and gold and all that stuff? No, the promise that finds salvation in the Savior. This is our hope. This is what we look forward to.
Would you pray with me?